Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's you doing from the Windy City today. I'm in Chicago. I'll be on with Don Lemon tonight. Special Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dr. Thomas Connor from the uh, Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com. Everything that Hillsdale does is available online at Hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for the free speech digest in Primus at Hillsdale.edu. But this is a special week. It's Veterans Day week. Now, I spent Wednesday talking with the wounded warriors of the Semper Fi Fund, injured Marine Semper Fi Fund, but but today we want to look a little more broadly at the sacrifice of veterans over the years. No better guy to do that with than Dr. Thomas Connor, who holds the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College. He's been teaching history there for three decades. He teaches courses on the World Wars, on French and Russian history, on the 19th and 20th century European adventures, oh, basically everything. He got his uh, undergraduate degree from Elizabethtown College, his MA and PhD from UNC Chapel Hill, so he didn't know anything about basketball. He has uh, been three times the Professor of the Year at Hillsdale, which takes some doing. And he's been named among the 300 best professors in the United States by the Princeton Review. Dr. Connor, welcome to the program. Good to have you, Doc. Great to be back with you, Hugh. Thanks for asking me. Now, I am, I'm curious about how you came to get interested in the American Battle Monuments Commission, about which you are writing right now. When I was a graduate student at uh, UNC back in the 70s, uh, I, well, I had a student year in Paris to uh, do research on my PhD dissertation. That took me to France, and uh, a lot of our overseas cemeteries are in France. And really, from the first moment, I began visiting those sites uh, that the American Battle Monuments Commission maintains. I, I saw not just how beautiful and well-maintained they were, but uh, I, I was very impressed with everything about them, right down to the personnel, how forthcoming, welcoming they were, and just how em- emotionally moving uh, the sites were. And I, I mean, I can't get enough of, of uh, going back and, and revisiting them. And I have taken student groups there uh, periodically since uh, the late 70s as well. And I've gotten to know a lot of the cemetery personnel. And since I've started working on this book seven or eight years ago, I've gotten to know a number of the headquarters personnel in the Washington office too. And it's just a, it's just a a wonderfully run government agency with a very special, even hallowed mission. Now, you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone from Hillsdale say a wonderfully run government <laughs> agency before. That's a first, Doc. Well, I'm, I'm well aware of that, You <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so tell us about the ABMC. Who runs it? How big is it? And, uh, and how many of these monuments are there worldwide? Well, there are 25 cemeteries uh, worldwide that the ABMC uh, maintains, 22 of them are World War I and World War II cemeteries. I mean, not both together, but there are eight World War I cemeteries, 14 World War II cemeteries. There are 11 World War I monuments uh, that are in France and Belgium, uh, as well as uh, there's one in Gibraltar, actually, to commemorate uh, naval activity that we did jointly with uh, the British Navy in, in the First World War. There is a scattering of, of other memorials. There are actually a couple ABMC memorials in uh, the United States. One is uh, an East Coast memorial commemorating uh, the departure point for a lot of our troops uh, who went to serve in Europe. That's in Battery Park, New York City. 
there's a, a West Coast memorial in the Presidio in San Francisco. So there's a there's a scattering. I think altogether about 35 or 40 sites uh, worldwide. Uh, it's one of the smallest federal agencies. It's independent. Uh, the leadership of ABMC reports directly to the president of the United States. There's no huh. uh, there's no departmental connection there, and uh, it's been in being since 1923. There are about 400 employees today, and they do their wonderful work of remembrance and commemoration on a budget of uh, uh, usually less than $100 million a year. Now, I have been to one. I know for sure. I've not been to Normandy. Normandy's on my bucket list, but I have been to the Florence American Cemetery and Memorial, and I was deeply moved. We hired a guide for the day, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I, and he said, have you been to the American Cemetery? I said, no, I don't know what it is. He took me out there, and he explained to me that every anniversary of the liberation of Florence, the people of Florence go out and honor the American dead who lie there in repose and in extraordinary beauty. Is that the same impact everywhere that these are? Yes, it is. Every place uh, that, that I have any familiarity with you, and I've, I've been to uh, just about every cemetery. Uh, the only two cemeteries that I have not visited um, be the one in Tunisia and uh, the one in Manila, both uh, World War II cemeteries. But that's one of the most uh, fascinating, frankly, uh, things about these sites, how revered they are by the host nationals. And this is especially true in France. I mean, Americans are kind of coached, I think, or we coach ourselves to think that there's a certain amount of enmity uh, on the part of French people toward us. But it certainly doesn't show uh, in the neighborhood of these sites because they come out uh, in the hundreds, uh, even the thousands on commemorative occasions, whether Armistice Day or uh, an anniversary of a particular liberation like you experienced uh, at Florence. Uh, Memorial Day is uh, usually the largest of the annual commemorative ceremonies at all the cemeteries, and the D-Day anniversary um, for the World War II cemeteries uh, is also a big moment. But it's in, in the main, it is citizens of the host countries that attend these ceremonies. I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Connor, the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College and an expert on the American Battle uh, Monuments Commission. Tell me about how they, are they happenstance? Is Florence where it is because they needed a cemetery? We know why Normandy is where Normandy is, but how did they come to be placed where they are? Well, a principle was established uh, in the aftermath of World War I, Hugh, when the first permanent American cemeteries were um, selected, the sites for them were selected, and uh, the, the principle that is maintained at just about every one of the cemeteries is that uh, the dead be buried on a field, a battlefield where Americans fought and died. So the sighting is not um, accidental. It's quite, quite deliberate. Now, I, I don't know the history in detail of the Florence uh, American Cemetery, but I'm guessing that at the end of World War II, as the Italian campaign was wrapping up, um, there may well have been a temporary cemetery uh, on the site that was made permanent um, to be the site that you visited and that that any American, anybody can visit uh, to this day. Um, At the end of each war, the families who lost soldiers were given the option of an overseas burial or the 
body being returned at government expense. Oh, you're anticipating my question. I was wondering how it was chosen by family. So some families said, let my son and sometimes daughter lay where they fell. Yes, exactly. And and the the really interesting thing about the distribution, how many families decided that they wanted their loved one brought home versus how many decided to leave uh, him or her in an overseas cemetery. It was 61% wanted them brought home. At the end of each war, Hugh, the, the choice was made in exactly the same proportion. 61% brought home, 39% of those killed abroad uh, remain in permanent American cemeteries abroad. Does the uh, ABMC also do anything with, is it only post-World War I conflict, or do they do they reach back in time to Gettysburg and places like that as well? Uh, no, the, uh, the ABMC was established in 1923, and uh, it, it, it's quite logical that uh, it, it should have been this way. The, the national cemeteries in our country today are maintained by a combination, typically, of Veterans Administration, uh, Army, and in some cases, the Park Service. That's true of Arlington, for example. But there are three government agencies that deal with those cemeteries. The ABMC had the specific mission of creating first and now maintaining and preserving overseas cemeteries because the First World War was the first really large overseas war that the United States fought. We lost 75 or 80,000 dead uh, during the fighting in Europe in World War I, and that created a problem for the government. All the bodies were abroad, and when the war was over, then the question is, well, where are we going to inter all these soldiers permanently? And there was actually quite a bit of discussion within the government. Some were advocating either bringing them all home or leaving them all overseas. But the decision was made by Secretary of War Newton Baker in the administration of President Wilson that the families would be given the choice. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, I'll be right back. Okay. Stand by, Dr. Thomas Connor. Doc, as they call him at the Hillsdale College campus, all of this and more still ahead in every Hillsdale dialogue, which you hear in the last radio hour of every week, available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back. 21 minutes after the hour, Americans here here with Dr. Thomas Connor. He holds the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College. He's an expert on the American Battlefield Monument Commission. And I believe you're writing this book, Doc. What's the title of it going to be and what's its expanse going to be about? I'm I'm trying to cover the entire history of of the agency, Hugh, from its uh, creation in 1923. Actually, I go all the way back to the end of the First World War when this dilemma faced the United States government of what to do with the bodies of uh, our dead soldiers uh, from the European conflict. But uh, I want to bring it all the way up to the present, although um, the intensity of my my coverage, let's say, is kind of diminishing as we get closer and closer to the present. I'm more interested really in telling the story of the, the first generation of the uh, existence of the agency when the World War I monuments were built. Then, of course, uh, since they're all in uh, in Europe, or not all of them, some are in England, but the World War I sites were mostly in the path of the invading German army uh, at the beginning of World War II, and all those sites eventually in France and Belgium came under German authority during the Second World War, so I'm telling that story, how they Did were Did the Germans preserved. honor them? Did they honor our, our cemeteries? Yes, 99% of the time they did, and um, I think that speaks to 
the fact that at least in the regular German army, there still was observance of what soldiers would typically refer to as a, as a code of, of soldierly honor. There's only one instance, Hugh, that I know of uh, at the St. Mihail Cemetery, which is south of Verdun. The Battle of St. Mihail was the first big battle that the American army fought as an independent army, uh, really, literally in the closing months of World War I. There are about 4,000 graves down there, and of course the Jewish graves have stars of David marking them, and there were instances at that one cemetery on one occasion of zealot uh, German soldiers, fanatical German soldiers, desecrating um, the Jewish headstones. But when the commandant of the German unit, so the story goes, found out about it, he put a stop to it immediately. And I've run into no other uh, examples of that kind of thing. Now, Dr. Connor, we're coming up on the centennial of America's entry into World War uh, One, And... Uh, Led by the uh, the Mayflower, a destroyer that was commanded actually by my wife's grandfather. So we kind of know about this thing. Are you being approached uh, for your expertise on World War One? Not many Americans know much about World War One. Um, I've I've kind of been an informal consultant uh, with the ABMC headquarters in Washington. Hugh, they they've taken on some additional personnel to try to publicize. Uh, you know, that story uh, a little more. And I've been very happy to, to work with them. But uh, that's about all I've been doing. I'm, I'm very hopeful that the book will be finished. It, I still have a couple chapters to write, but I would love to get it out, uh, find a publisher, someone who's willing to publish it, and get it out certainly by 2017 or 2018. So what what is our first major battle? I know the Mayflower said we are ready now uh, as soon as we take on a load of coal. But what, what was the first major land battle in which American troops fought, not independently, but just fought in World War I? Uh, typically, uh, the answer to that is given as uh, that that engagement occurred in May of uh, 1918. Uh, near a small French village up in the Somme sector, up northeast of Paris, called Cantigny. And the 1st Marine, uh, excuse me, the 1st Division uh, fought there. Uh, but it was attached to French units. And But the Americans were very interested in sort of establishing what they could do. And they actually uh, took the village, they, they drove the Germans out of their positions in Cantigny and then held it as well because... The Germans were as interested in showing us to be less than efficient fighters as we were proving the opposite. So the Germans counterattacked furiously at Cantigny, but without success. So that's typically uh, named as the first place that May of 1918. It was also Veterans Day this week. Uh, mm-hmm. It was also the 240th birthday of the Marine Corps. And, of course, I think they got their name, the Devil Dogs, in World War One. Am I right about that? Absolutely. But that uh, name came from uh, a, a later battle in June of 1918 at a place called Bellow Wood. And uh, that was a major American engagement as well. But we don't say that the Americans were fighting independently because they were basically involved in a joint operation with the French uh, at that point. But yet it's the Germans who gave them that truffle hund, hunden, uh, is in the German devil devil dogs, exactly. Where did, what what were they Bella referring Wood. to? Was that just their ferocity and attack? What was the, what's the story behind it? I think it, it's, it's precisely that. You, Bellow Wood was a, a very bloody 
engagement. It was fought uh, in in a forest, uh, mostly. We were trying to drive the Germans out of Bella Wood, and, and the Marines eventually did. And uh, But the Marines fought with such ferocity that the Germans uh, dubbed them uh, devil dogs. There's a very beautiful um, ABMC cemetery. It's the Ain Marne American Cemetery uh, right on the edge of Bella Wood to this day. Are you surprised at, at how your career developed with this interest, Doctor? Um, well, in some senses, yes. You, uh, you know, I have a chair in military history here at Hillsdale, but I'm not trained as a military historian. Um, the travel opportunities, which put me in touch with these beautiful sites uh, overseas, developed out of my research interest, um, you know, in French history generally. But um, no, I never would have imagined really that uh, I'd be engaged in a in a project that that was this oriented toward military history. But I'm I'm enjoying it immensely, and one of the most enjoyable things about it has been the wonderful cooperation I've gotten from um, so many people in the American Battle Monuments Commission itself. I you know I bet you the ABMC cannot wait for this book to be finished. By the way, how many members of the commission? Now I've got my idea. I'm gonna have to look at the uh, Plum Book when uh, the Republican wins the White House and asks for an appointment to the ABMC. It sounds like fun. Well, it uh, you know Victor Davis Hanson, uh, who whom I'm sure you uh, know quite well, uh, was a member of the commission, uh, an appointee of George W. Bush in Not 2008. Not surprised. Yeah, he Victor, actually like you. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks for that, uh, but. Uh, He's a very good friend of Hillsdale College, and I've gotten to know him over the years, and he helped me to get interested uh, in this. But there are 11 members of the commission. Um, in, in the first generation of activity, there were only seven members. But coming out of World War II, when the commission literally reconstituted itself, when, when it was established in 1923, you nobody really envisioned that it would have to build another generation. Yeah, it's of, it's of, it, by fun I mean what an honor to be able oh, to abso- honor no, these absolutely. people. Yeah, Ab- I mean absolutely. Just- and you know, it's a it's a good commission. Um, Max Cleland, the former senator from Georgia, sure. uh, the triple amputee from Vietnam, uh, former veteran secretary. He, he, to me, is a perfect choice uh, to be the secretary. And um, the, you're the absolutely commi- right. And there are going to be, I, you know, I wonder if we're going to go to break. I wonder if after these long wars, if there will be any additional monuments overseas. It does not seem to me to be the kind of wars in which we're going to leave our dead behind. I'll be back. One more segment with Thomas Connor. Don't go anywhere. Doc will return to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's been a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, talking with Dr. Thomas Connor, holds the William Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues available at HughForHillsdale.com. Dr. Connor, we went to break, and I want to finish this thought. We've been involved in a war since 9-11. It's been fought in many places from, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan, but to Djibouti and all over the world, actually. We've had people uh, fighting, sometimes in secret, sometimes not. But we don't really anticipate ever establishing another far-off cemetery, do we? No, uh, Hugh. One of, one of the principles um, established by the original American Battle Monuments Commission was that our overseas cemeteries would only be set up on friendly ground or ground that was likely to remain friendly uh, to us in the aftermath of whatever uh, the wars uh, that, that caused the dead 
uh, to be buried overseas. And sadly, uh, I don't think we have the same likelihood in the kind of wars we're fighting now of um, the territory, you know, where we have sacrificed soldiers uh, being permanently friendly to us. And do, to your knowledge, do we need security at these cemeteries or do the local people take care of them for us? That, that's a very interesting question, and it varies depending on the location. Um, I got to be very good friends with uh, one of the superintendents at Normandy, and um, he told me a lot about how such issues were handled. And it is the case that the local authorities provide the security for, for these places, and they're very dependable, the, the local authorities, the, the gendarmes in France or whatever the local police would be elsewhere. But I know that in the case of the Tunis Cemetery, uh, that's, you know, in a, in a very difficult, dangerous part of the world now. And I, I think that the American personnel may have been withdrawn from that cemetery in, in recent months. Uh, you, I'm not, I'm not sure of that, but I've heard that. Let, let me conclude our conversation, Dr. Connor, by asking you, you've obviously been to most of these, uh, and I don't mean to say favorite in terms of physical beauty, but which is the most moving? Uh, they must all be. I found Florence to be exceptionally moving, but which is the most moving to you? Well, they're each beautiful in their own way, uh, even though the, the style of the, the headstones and even the style of the architecture, generation by generation, the World War I cemeteries have a, a bit more classical or neoclassical kind of architecture in the uh, cemetery buildings and the monuments, World War II a bit differently. But um, I, I think my, my favorite cemeteries are the ones that I enjoy visiting the most, frankly, are the World War I cemeteries. Because when one goes to a World War I cemetery, you, one has the feeling that, that he or she is, is doing something that, that most Americans just don't get to do. The, you know, the Normandy Cemetery is, is the best known, and it's got a stunningly beautiful site, and it's wonderfully maintained, and I love visiting there as well. But the World War I Cemetery, you can, you can almost be by yourself in those cemeteries, too, and uh, you can have a much more reflective experience uh, at, at those quieter sites, let's say. And the artwork in, in uh, especially the St. Mihiel cemetery. It's just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Well, Dr. Connor, I hope that as we approach the 100th anniversary of America's entry into World War I, someone in Hollywood is listening and thinking at the History Channel, I ought to find Doc Connor at Hillsdale, and we ought to start putting together a series of visits because it's the most obvious television series that I've never seen. <laughs> I, it just seems to me that you ought to be narrating visits and and because the one world war one series they only got a minute uh pbs tried to do it when i was with pbs and it didn't work it just didn't work it, it, it they thought it was going to be ken burns or they thought it was be saving private ryan or band of brothers and it fell completely flat do you remember it uh i don't actually but um you know i remember the movie war horse uh that steven spielberg did a while back we were kind of hoping that that might rekindle some interest in the first world war but uh no, you're right. I think it's it's the sense of immediacy, Hugh, that's lacking. You know, at least with World War II, uh, there are still veterans with whom people, you know, of the current generation can connect. Uh, World War One is just maybe a little too remote in time to stimulate the same kind of interest. But the centennial is the ideal moment to do that if it's ever going to happen again. Well, perhaps so. you and I can devote a couple of hours. I'll talk to Dr. Arn and my colleague Kyle Mernon there at Hillsdale College about devoting 
a few hours to World War One as we get closer and closer to the centennial. Uh, Dr. Thomas Connor, thank you so much, Professor. I look forward to talking to you again. Pleasure to be with you, Hugh. Thanks for the opportunity.